Okay, if you ask for questions, I guess you need to be ready because you're going to get questions. But I was stupid. I thought this would be kind of easy. You know, these are going to be, you know, simple. Give me questions. Here, here's, a, here's, a, here's a slow pitch. Take it. Huh. Boy, was I wrong. We got a lot of questions. I picked some that I think are pretty interesting. Sit back and relax. This is the question episode of 2021. Hey, everybody. Pre-accident podcast. How are you? I'm good. I think. <laughs> it's so hard to tell. It's a, the world is a, yeah, it's just hard. It's, it's hard. I think I'm good though. I mean, healthy and happy and thinking about all the people that have been touched by COVID and by the COVID related complexities, loss of business, loss of job, lots of time, no family travel, uh, you know, all the stuff that's missing. I'm, I'm trying to be really sensitive to that and to be as supportive as I can be in sort of the pay it forward way. And I think it's it's it seems like the rest of the community is right there with me, um, and that's good. But tensions are high, and you can feel it. I mean, you can just feel it's pent up energy, and people are kind of maybe the word is done, although finished might be a better word. Meat is done, people are finished, but we're sort of at the end of our patience, and there's little rays of hope, and then it goes backwards and forwards and backwards. But it's been a year, and they told us it would be 36 months. So if um, if they're right, uh, and they might be because uh, several people told me that, but my friend Cam told me that, and he's, I mean, his whole life work is uncertainty, emergency management. And he said, you know, that they train for a 36-month interruption, which means we got more of this, and maybe we do. But I'm looking good in a mask. I really think... Uh, I think a mask is a good look on me. So even though people yell at me, uh, maybe that's part of the new world. It seems like people are, are, their fuses are short. So there you go. So, okay. So this is the question episode. And, uh, I, I got, got kind of talked into doing this, but it seems like an okay idea. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not against it. I was really surprised by two things. The amount of questions we got, which they were all really good. I mean, there's not a loser question in there by any stretch of the imagination. And the other thing that amazed me is how the the complex, not the complex, the, they're hard questions. I mean, they're really good questions that are interesting. And and it's 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 interesting. I'll I'll play them for you and see what you think about it because I actually think. Uh, well, let's see how I do. I'd be curious to see what you think about my answers. Did I answer the question? Did I not answer the question? Am I in the, in the big stall? Because the big stall is out there, baby. Don't know. Don't even underestimate it for a minute that uh, that I couldn't go into the big stall. I know how to do it. You know, rephrase the question, say how good of a question it is, toss it back. That's really a good question. What do you think about that question? Except all those devices are gone because it's just me. So I should have maybe had this be a call in, but that would have been kind of a mess to coordinate. So let's march into this and I'll just take them one at a time and I'll just give you a question and then a little discussion around the question. Does that sound good? That, can you deal with that? Is that going to be good enough? 
This is the question episode of 2021. Okay, here we go. In no particular order, I'm just taking them as I got them in front of me. Here's question one. Todd, as a person who's had the pleasure of being in a couple of your presentations and a reader of your books and a listener to your podcast, I appreciate that your approach does not lead people into religious fervor. Mottos, sound bites, and catchphrases can be helpful when communicating single elements to mass audiences. Unfortunately, these focused nuggets of wisdom are often raised on pedestals of worship and latched onto as the answer. Typically, to the exclusion of larger, more complex concepts. One example is that at our corporate direction, we've actually had people pledging adherence to our essential controls as a part of our morning field tailboards. These pledges were being spoken aloud as incantations. How can we avoid the safety as a religion trap? Man, that's a great question. Let's hope I can come up with a great answer to this great question because I actually think there's a lot to this question because my, my first response to this would be, you're right. You know, we can do jingoisms and mottos and, and signs, and none of that's really terribly effective. And, and I guess if you push me and ask me why it wasn't effective, the answer I'd give you is because it really is pretty old school. Because the assumption is, is that the worker is the problem to be fixed. And if we come up with a clever way or uh, to sort of build on the question, uh, a way with religious fervor and seriousness that workers will swear before everyone that's important, they will be good and obedient and careful that the problem will in fact go away. And so my initial response to your question which is probably not terribly satisfying is that what scares me is that really what we're still indicating is that the one thing we can change to make the world a better place is make workers be better. And I think that's actually pretty old thinking. I also think it's uh, incredibly unfair to the worker because it really is putting all the burden for managing these high risk programs with religious fervor on the people with probably the least resources to actually manage high-risk programs with religious fervor. And so my immediate response would be, let's think about really the direct reason why this program exists, and then let's think about the indirect reasons why this program exists. Because as your question goes on and you start talking about the fact that you're making people actually pledge adherence to the essential controls, I actually think that that is really kind of a mixed message because you're you're holding the workers responsible for having the essential controls in place. And my immediate response to that would be, what's your work management, work planning, work control system look like that you're really counting on the worker at the pointy end of the stick to actually validate and verify the presence of those controls in place? So I would look... Um, for more organizational 
responsibilities. Does that make sense? I, I look for places to actually make the confirmation of the controls being in place and really the validation and verification of the controls that they're happening not in conjunction with the worker, but simultaneously. So they become more independent verifications and really not internal verifications. But I think the bigger subtext to the, your question is how we're really looking for simple answers to very complex problems. And my guess is, is that we're using really simple problem-solving tools, simple problem statements, pretty linear thinking to actually manage what is a highly variable, highly adaptive, complex work environment. And I know that's going to be true because you're leaning on controls to actually manage uncertainty. So the question I would come back with, which is unfair because I promised I wouldn't do this, but here I am doing it, is um, what what does it look like when the controls are not in place? So when the controls aren't there and the guys don't start the job because the controls aren't, aren't in place, does the company celebrate that as a success? Do they see that as a victory? Is that really... Uh, uh, an example of how you can start when you're certain, when you, you know the work's there. Because that's really, I mean, that's where I would take that, is that, to me, getting them to actually stand up and publicly declare they will use the controls is great. But the question I'm more interested in is, if the controls aren't present, what's the response from the organization when they don't start the job or they don't make the affirmation that they will use the controls because they're either not usable, they're not present, they're not sufficient. There's a million reasons why um, the controls could not be present. So this is a really interesting question. And it ends up with this idea of how do we avoid safety as a religion? Well, part of what I think we do is we understand that when we see safety as converting our workforce into becoming more safe, kind of the safety as a religion model, that's actually really probably not a good way to think about safety because that really says we're going to fix the workers and make them be more safe and then make them swear they'll be more safe. And it's really kind of a very elaborate way to just sort of force everything on the back of the people actually doing the work in the highly adaptive environment. My advice to you would be to take that program that you have and build on it in a direction that moves more towards a larger systemic understanding of what's going on. I think actually that would be really valuable. So take what they've done, and instead of throwing it out and saying, that's stupid, say, we're in the right place here. We're dangerously close. But right now we're sort of making safety something that they swear for, why don't we make safety something that's operationally available? It's a capacity. Uh, there's margin in the work we do, and that margin will help us be better. That's a really good, it's a thoughtful question, and it's a really good question. I'm not sure I did it justice, but that's my impression of that question because it's that good. Okay, you guys, here's the next question. In your vast experience, what is the smoothest way that you've seen a company transition from a behavioral-based mindset and leadership style 
to a human performance mindset and leadership style? And what are the characteristics learned by them to smooth this transition? That's a great question, too. So the question is moving from behavioral-based safety to a much more uh, uh, novel view, maybe a human performance view, safety too. What it, it's called a million things. I'm not sure it matters what it's called. But moving from really the worker is the problem to be fixed to the system needs to be understood in order to create an environment that has the capacity to do high-risk work in a complex environment successfully. How is that? Huh? Think I've been around this? So I've been around this question a lot. It's oftentimes in front of like thousands of people I get asked this question. And I, they almost always ask this question to me in a way that uh, it feels like they want to – you didn't do this, but in a way they want to – they weaponize it and use it kind of as a, as a, to injure me. So here's what I'll tell you. I, I think moving from a behavioral-based safety program to a more interesting and novel human performance-based program is not a terribly hard jump. The problem is, is that philosophically, amongst your leaders, you really have to make a big shift in two things. One is how they define safety, because the BBS program, for the most part, defines safety as an outcome to be managed and measured. And remember, you guys, when we use metrics, we're always looking at sort of a historical understanding of what the system has done, right? And so... We have to redefine safety, and the one I use all the time is safety is not the absence of accidents. It's the presence of control. It's the presence of defenses, the presence of safeguards, the presence of, of, of capacity. Pick any one that fits your company's culture. So we have to get them to stop looking at safety as an outcome to be achieved and start seeing safety as an operational capability that exists in real time that we can draw from and use when variability takes us to places where we need recoverability, adaption, um, and the ability to learn, improve, and understand, right? So we got that going for us. No question about that. That's important. So that is step one at the leadership level. Step two is then you have to actually help leaders understand what they need to do differently because how they respond and react makes a huge difference. And remember, and it's worth noting, We've been telling them for a long, long time that the best way to manage safety is to observe workers for safe behavior and reward that and observe workers for unsafe acts and coach and counsel that. So we've told them be on the floor and really audit them for their behavior. So all I can tell you is what we did, and what we did was really slowly over time in a kind of a, not a sneaky way, but we transitioned really carefully and slowly, is we moved our observation program for focusing on behaviors to actually focusing on conditions. And we did it kind of kind of by looking at, at, at like the air-likely conditions, uh, the twin model, if you know that from the DOE performance guide, from the human performance guide, right, or the WITH model. It's the same model. It's just the different acronyms for it, we started to get our observation program really aligned towards looking for conditions that were present in the workplace. And then eventually, once we kind of got the condition thing going, we started backing down from behaviors. And eventually, honest to goodness, 
Uh, you can talk to a guy, Jim Kleinstuber. He'll tell you all about this. We pretty much took behaviors completely off the card and stopped tracking them and started looking specifically at the presence of conditions and then the alignment of controls. And that was a pretty good way to do that. And and that, that worked. There's two ways to change people. You can either train them to be different or act them into being different. And we really tried to just act people into being different by changing the the card, by by focusing the card more on the system and less on the people. So we moved from a who failed card to a what failed card to sort of characterize that in Sydney Deckerin kind of language. And it worked pretty darn well for us. I mean, it, it, it made a huge difference. And the unintended benefit of it is that we had a huge shift in how we thought about managing safety. And suddenly leaders had more than just behaviors as a lever to make reliable performance better. Because now they were looking at systems and conditions and controls, processes. They were looking at at things that they actually were empowered to have power over, he says in the dumbest response ever. And that seemed to make a huge difference in, in how things changed. So my advice is, is build a bridge from what you're currently doing and sort of consciously change the direction of your behavioral-based program so that it's no longer behavioral observation. It's really contextual observation. And do that by including the new definition for leaders and an understanding that if they want different outcomes, if they want different levers to pull, they need only ask a different set of questions. I hope that helps. That's a really good question. Very, very astute. You are a smart question asker. And now it's time for the next question. Todd, I've been subscribed, listening, and enjoying your podcasts for almost a year. During this time, I've been leading a number of teams within a utility company, one of which performs highly variable, dangerous work your writings and podcasts, and the thought leaders that you've introduced me to have helped me greatly inform my perspective and actions of my leadership support for these folks. I've now been asked to lead our safety organization. As I prepare to begin this role, I would appreciate hearing from you or others as to what I should be sure to not do starting from day one. Thanks. Okay, so that's a great question. I can't wait to get into that one. Okay, so here we go. And I guess to answer this question, I need to probably give you a little background. I used to work for this guy named Lloyd Knudsen. He was a a Marine, incredible leader. I think I've talked about him before on the podcast. He was really an amazing leader, maybe the best leader I've ever worked with ever in my entire life because he just was, uh, I don't know, he's just wise, really understood human beings, really understood leadership. He's great. And uh, we used to do this meeting every night at five o'clock for all the incoming leaders that would arrive at Philmont to take kids out on the trail for 12 days. 
And so every day at five o'clock, we'd have 75, maybe up to a hundred adult leaders that we would take into this room and just for them, nobody else, it was a, a very exclusive meeting. We would have this meeting and I did about half of the meeting. And then Mr. Knutson, Lloyd Knutson did the, the back half and sort of challenged them to create this amazing experience for the people they brought with them and really talked about how to do that. And he taught me two things that are really important that I promise I'm getting to the question that make made a huge difference to me. One is he said, always set the room up for the number of people you're going to have. So we would get a count for how many people would be in that meeting. And we'd put exactly that many chairs in the room because then you managed where people were. It was really a good lesson because and it was part of just the way he thought about the world. Because you got to be in control of where people were in the room. The other thing he told me is never, ever tell people what not to do. Find ways to tell them what to do, but don't find ways to tell them what not to do. So this question is really interesting because basically it was a beautiful question. I mean, amazing. But you're asking me as the new safety director, what should you not do? And I don't, I, 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 I guess I've had such an impression in my career that I really react to telling you what not to do. But I'll tell you, the most important thing I think you can do, and there's really three things that I would think about. One is, is remember, you always get the group where they are, not where you want them to be. So the company and the safety program you're inheriting you have to start where that safety program is, not where you wish it were. Because when you start where it is, then that allows you to slowly and surely transition step-by-step, passo-y-passo, and move the organization towards really the alignment you want them to be a part of. And it's methodical, and it's, it's really respectful enough to understand that where they are is important. Because not everything they do is wrong or bad. In fact, many of the parts of the program you're going to inherit are incredibly good. So understand what's good and do that by respectfully taking them from where they are and then moving them to where you need them to go. That's the first piece of advice I'd give you. The second piece of advice is really listen carefully to all the artifacts, conversations, investigations, corrective actions. There's a lot of artifacts in the organization. And you probably know them because you're in the organization now. But listen carefully to how the organization defines really safety success. Do they see safety success as the absence of harm? And do they measure it sort of in the rearview mirror by counting injuries? Or do they see safety as really part of the larger reliability and resilience suite that you said you were a utility, that a utility industry would understand at a deep level. Think about reliability, big R reliability, the way you think about sort of uptime for your systems. Think about that same definition in the way you think about safety as a capacity to do work. So listen carefully to how they define safety and help them come up with a more contemporary definition of what safety is, which means you're also going to change directly what you look at and what managers talk about, which is the third thing. And that is if you want different outcomes, you have to do different things, right? 
So if you want better safety performance, then you need to have leaders ask better safety questions about that performance. And so help leaders understand their role in this next transition to safety as it exists in your utility. Their role is where the big changes are going to happen because you can really count on them as leaders to be a part of making those big changes. Now, one watchword, and then I'm out of this question, and that is always remember that the group that needs the most education on understanding a new approach to resilience, reliability, and safety are the leaders. So don't give the workforce, you know, a a four-hour workshop in safety too because they understand this new view of safety pretty well. They live on the pointy end of the stick, so they got it. But do give your leadership a safe environment that is really aligned towards education and development of these new ideas in a way where they can ask questions and really understand what the new expectation is for them as leaders. That is a very, very, very important thing you can give your organization and completely worthwhile. Good luck, my friend. I didn't tell you what not to do, but I tried to really focus on three things that you could do that I think are important and will make a big difference. Okay, here's another question. Morning, Todd. Trust all is well in your world. The human performance question I struggle with the most is how to systemically, now let me reread that, how to systematically learn from normal work. My safety two instinct is to go in with a checklist of the black line expectations and identify where the blue line deviates with the attention of ascertaining in a healthy human performance manner the reason for the deviation. But this idea quickly becomes an audit process and associated with the Hawthorne effect and other biases. Equally, workers completing some type of card or self-reporting system becomes an observation card, uh, kind of a rat-on or a a sycophant card system to the organization. Ron Gant's work with the refuse drivers is awesome and is very productive from a human performance learning from normal work perspective. But there's no way a company is going to pay for this in a long-term program. We have a fleet of about 30 offshore construction vessels and about a dozen onshore yards. That would mean we'd have to train a half dozen people or so to act as collaborators, gatherers, kind of learning hounds, facilitators of learning to act in this role. Or am I wrong? And this is the way to go. And companies are either all in or not all in. Thanks for the podcast. Woohoo! I love this question. I think this is the right direction to go. And I love, uh, first of all, super cool that you nodded out to Ron Gant and the refuse driver. I would call them trash people, trash men and women, right? But the, the refuse drivers. Um, I, and I love this question because this question really is the right question to be asking. In, in my opinion, it's certainly something I'm completely fixated with. So let's establish something right away as we sort of move into this. Um, your guys and gals do way more successful work than they do have accidents. 
So they're doing highly complex work in all types of environments on vessels at sea, at least in reference to your guys' question, and they're mostly successful at what they do. So the vast majority of time, they're adaptively doing work in a highly complex environment successfully. In fact, one of the things I would tell you is you have events all the time, all the time, all the time. It's just that they're handled at the immediate locality by highly adaptive workers who recover and adapt and create success from what could have potentially been tragedy, snatching success out of the jaws of defeat. So this works happening all the time. And you're right. You want to go out and understand typical work. And I, I really started to use the word typical work. I was teaching a workshop the other day, and, and somebody told me typical work is probably a better word than normal work because it really isn't normal work, but there's, there's sort of typical work. And auditing typical work is not very good because of exactly what you said, the Hawthorne effect. So if you don't know what the Hawthorne effect is, there was a study done at a GE facility in Hawthorne where they would uh, go and observe the workers working. And while they were there, they would turn the lighting up in the plant so that they could observe the workers and productivity would get better. And then they tried to experiment by just turning the light up and not observing the workers and productivity would get better. And the premise is, this is the worst definition ever of Hawthorne effect. The premise is, is that an observed worker is going to be better at what they do because you're observing them. And so you're impacting them by observing them, kind of the Margaret Mead understanding of sociology experiment right there, right? Um, as science calls it the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. There's lots of, lots of words for it. But, but when you observe a process, you, by definition, are intervening into that process because you're observing it, right? So, so this idea that you could go out and observe them or make checklists or observation cards is probably wrong. As crazy as this is going to sound, and it sounds crazy, the very best thing you can do is create opportunities to ask workers how work is done. And to do that, you're going to have to shift. I sound like a broken record, but you're going to have to shift your approach so that the worker isn't the problem. The worker is actually the expert. Workers are experts in understanding how your system works. They know where your system is strong and bold and good and resilient, and they know where your system is weak and brittle and bad. And the very best way to get that information is to simply talk to them and include them in how work is being done, but not in some kind of cursory way like, well, we've had the employees walk this uh, this procedure down before we used it. No, use them as problem identifiers and also solution generators and do it by actually creating an environment where you realize your most important data set in success is the people who are doing the work. Now, it sounds really woolly and kind of fakey and lovey-dovey and uh, massage therapy and soft skills, but it's really not. I mean, it's, it's, really, it's really creating opportunities for after-action reviews, really looking at how you do near-miss reporting, uh, looking at how people talk about typical work, feedback mechanisms into your system. And the big one is getting your leadership suite really across the board to ask a whole different series of questions where they're actually going out 
and being really curious how typical work is being done. The big question to ask, it's kind of an Eric Hallnickel question, but it's a really important question, is ask this question a lot. What's happening when nothing bad's happening? And that actually points you towards understanding typical work. Now, there's a couple of ways to answer this. You can say, we're getting lazy, we're getting complacent. I mean, there's a lot of things to say there. But ultimately, that vision is kind of old school. What I'd like you to look at is when you ask what's happening when nothing bad's happening, I want you to start to realize that the systems and capacity that you've built to do high-risk work is working. And that, my friends, is what you want to do. That's a good question. I hope I answered it. I hope I wasn't too uh, fluffy-duffy, but that is a really great question. Typical work, talk to the people who do the job. Don't audit. Don't observe. Don't put out cards. Just talk to them. Give leaders questions and get them in the field and make them curious. What's going on? We just did this big job. What's going on? Because nothing bad happened. How did we get to a place where nothing bad happened? Because bad things could happen anytime. That will make a huge change. Good question. So there's a couple more. I mean, there's actually more than a couple more. There's there's more questions, but that seems to be kind of a good place to stop. Because that's, I, 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 what do you think about this? I'd be curious to see what you think. Was it valuable? Did it help? I can do this more. I've got more questions kind of in the queue. I've even have them recorded sort of, so I'm ready to go. But it, it seems like this is a really interesting way to look at what you guys are thinking about. There's a couple that I've set aside for maybe a longer podcast that I think really draw to like a Ted asked a question about the difference between responsibility and accountability, which I think is that's worthy of its own big discussion. And that's coming up as well. But thank you for the feedback. Thanks for the questions. I hope this was valuable. I kind of enjoyed it. I mean, it was not as bad as I thought it was going to be. And so that's good. Learn something new every single day. Have as much fun as you possibly can. Be kind to each other. Check up on one another. And for goodness sakes, be safe.